This year, the politics of France, Sweden and now Italy have all been swept up in the tide of right-wing nationalism in Europe. So when, or even will, this tide peak? Dr Michael Bruning runs the New York office of the Friedrich Ebert Institute, Germany's social democratic think tank. He's been watching this trend for 20 years, and he says the left must accept some of the blame. His new book is On the End of Freedom, and I met him in New York. Right-wing political parties in Europe have embraced this role of trying to represent the working class vote. I mean, when you look at uh, political programs across the board from France to um, Germany, where we have the Alternative für Deutschland, the alternative for Germany, but also in large parts of Southern Europe and in Eastern Europe, it's the far right who is calling for higher minimum wages, that are calling for, you know, increases in pensions, who are trying to have a critical discussion about the problems connected to inflation. The problems are real and some right-wing political parties are trying to address them and are trying to steal this electorate from traditional left-wing parties who are failing to represent these workers. Now, why do they embrace nationalism? Because, you know, nationalism still has a role to play in a democratic society. And, and I'm not talking about sort of chauvinistic ethnic uh, homogeneity. I'm talking about a progressive nationalism that is post-ethnic, that understands that a democratic society needs a collective we, needs a we in which we can integrate newcomers to the system, needs a we to organize solidarity, needs a we to organize democratic decision-making. And all this is happening in a democratic nation-state. And I think it is a bit of a problem that parts of the left are moving away from accepting the role, the legitimate role of a nation state and try to sort of overcome that. I understand where they come from. I also listen to John Lennon, uh, imagine, yeah. and I know that nationalism can have terrible consequences, but I feel that we cannot be too extreme in our desire to purge ideologies of the negative aspects, because we might also just destroy some very positive aspects of these ideologies in the process. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking, has nationalism, and frankly, a chauvinistic form of nationalism, however, appropriated that traditional left-wing idea of solidarity? I'm not sure if that's the case. I think what is the case is that nationalism is an ideological concept that the left regards with suspicion. And I think that's legitimate. I mean, nationalism has pushed Europe, you know, my home continent, over the brink. On more than one occasion, my country has been guilty of excessive nationalism. So I think that a healthy skepticism towards national sentiment is understandable. But we have to understand that nationalism and solidarity are sort of part and parcel of the same thing. Because there are nation states in the world that are not welfare states, but there's not a single welfare state in the world that's not also a nation state. So the problem that I see is the fact that if you try to get rid of any kind of national sentiment of a civic patriotism, of national feeling of belonging, you might endanger the basis for a distributory system that is required for solidarity and basically for justice in a democratic society. 
You mentioned Germany there, of course, the Friedrich Ebert Institute. You run the office here now in New York, but it is the think tank of the Social Democratic Party. You have advised many Social Democrats in your time. How has Germany managed, though, under both Social Democratic and Christian Democratic governments to contain nationalism? We're talking here about post-war Germany. Well, I'm not sure that it has been contained because, of course, extreme nationalism, chauvinism always stays a problem and it has to be addressed. But that's part of my argument. If the left is serious about the fact that nationalism as a sentiment is an ideological construct and can be changed, then it's up to the left to embrace this and to change the national sentiment, to turn it into something good. If the left and progressive forces run away from national sentiment and from patriotism, we are leaving this two forces that have something else in mind, that are not necessarily ready to celebrate diversity, to celebrate solidarity. And that is the problem. The left needs the nation state, but the nation state also needs the left. Because only the left can protect the nation states from its pitfalls and from the trepidations of chauvinism and radicalism. Yeah, let's talk about the subject of a new book of yours, On the End of Freedom, How We Are Jeopardizing a Social Idea. That's an English translation of your German book. What is the argument that you're making there? I mean, what freedoms are we losing? And again, you say the left has been complicit in the loss of these freedoms. What are you talking about? The point of departure of the book on the end of freedom is this observation that progressives around the world didn't seem very disturbed by an unprecedented lack of civic freedoms and liberties in the framework of COVID, but also with regards to issues of freedom of speech, to questions related to identity politics. You know, I started working for the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, the think tank of the Social Democratic Party in Germany almost 20 years ago. And in the archive of this vast institute in Bonn, we still have the flag of the German workers' movement from the mid-19th century, from 1850. And it's a red flag, and, and it has the three slogans of the French Revolution, freedom, solidarity, and fraternity. And freedom used to be a core tenet of progressive thought. It used to be the basic value of progressive movements around the world. And when I started writing the book on the end of freedom, my observation and my fear was that progressives are giving up this value of freedom because freedom essentially, and we are speaking in New York, in the United States, but the same argument can be made around the world, that freedom has become a right-wing ideological slogan. It's the right who marches in the streets and chants freedom. And it's the left that has been, I think, worryingly okay with the infringement on liberties and civic rights. Now, you wrote this in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. The argument, of course, as I recall, Michael, as you will recall, was that these limits on civil liberties, but also, frankly, on some basic human rights, like the right to human companionship. Almost were, any rights. Yeah, the yeah. right to assemble, the right to worship, the freedom to, of movement, you know, almost any right was sort of impacted by it. Yeah, it wasn't the argument, though, that it was for a greater good. I mean, hard to overcome the idea that it was for a greater good, isn't it? And it certainly was. I mean, I'm not making the argument there that we are ruled by a group of criminals who want to rob our freedoms and turn this into a Stalinist gulag. That's not the argument at all. I think that COVID was real. It was a real problem. 
problem and, and we needed to respond. But there's a difference between flattening the curve and banning people from leaving their home for 24 months, mm -hmm. as we are witnessing and looking at China these days. And so I think that's a difference that we have to make. And I think we have to understand that fighting the virus was meant to be a temporary thing, but then these kind of infringements are never only temporary, are they? I mean, we're speaking in New York 20 years ago that there was the attack on the World Trade Center. And then what we saw 20 years ago was this export of the Patriot Act around the world where police was given new rights and the security establishment was given unprecedented leeway of action. And we actually, as a Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, did a study. We looked at the G20 countries and we looked, okay, 20 years after, where are these temporary rules now? Are they all gone? And of course, the result is that not in a single incidence were these rules taken back. The opposite was the case. There was just new laws and regulations piled on. And that's the concern, I think, that progressives should be having with the COVID rules, that it exercises a muscle in our society on how we respond to crisis. That's very, very problematic. Yeah, yeah. What made these harsh rules? And okay, there was, for many people, a life-threatening pandemic. We can't get away from that. But what made these rules so attractive to many progressives? Well, I think it was based first and foremost on insecurity because we didn't know what was happening. And that's why I would always be happy to acknowledge that in a moment of crisis, you have to give the democratic government the chance to respond. And nobody really knew what was happening when the pandemic hit. But then, you know, a process of learning and reflection has to start. And I think it's high time now to reflect on what worked and what didn't work. And the problem is that I don't see that happening. What I feel is happening is more sort of an attempt to gloss over the whole thing and that we are under the assumption that it all somehow worked. There's certainly examples around the world that went through the pandemic without the same extent of infringement on liberties. I'm thinking about Sweden, for example, in the European context, Denmark to a lesser extent. In the US, we have more than 50 federal states with very different regulation. And so there's plenty of experience and we have to really take a look at the data. And I think that it will be a sobering experience, and that's why probably why we are so reluctant to do it. This is the Religion and Ethics Report, and I'm speaking with Michael Bruning. Michael is the director here in New York of the Friedrich Ebert Institute, one of Germany's leading think tanks. He runs the New York office, and we're talking about Michael's new book, On the End of Freedom. Michael, one of the things that you identify as being a particular problem for progressives is that they have a distrust of democracy. Why? Well, you can imagine that everybody was very happy when I wrote that. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that is my concern. I hope I'm not overstating the argument here, but what I do observe is certain tendencies, in particular in parts of the progressive camp in Europe, in Germany and in the US, where people tend to think, you know what, we are living in a time of crisis. There's the COVID crisis, there's a global health crisis, there's a climate crisis, there's a migration crisis, there's a euro crisis, there's a crisis with Russia and the war in Ukraine. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And we can't just waste our time with these democratic deliberations now. It's time for action. And I think that's always a highly toxic and it's a very dangerous argument. 
because it's never too late for democracy. We always have to have time for democratic deliberation. But I think that's the problem. We feel that sort of we are in this perpetual state of crisis and we always know the answer. We know what needs to be done or we pertain to know what needs to be done. And then the voter sort of gets in the way, doesn't he or she? You know, we know what needs to happen to fight the climate crisis and we are concerned that people might not take the right decisions. And that's, I think, a very problematic position and it shouldn't be a position that progressives embrace. It, it could also, it strikes me, Michael, be somewhat self-defeating if you say that you believe in it's you, you have a mistrust of democracy because certainly in Australia, I suspect, I think, looking at the historical record in Germany too, the centre-left and progressive parties tend to hold power a lot less than centre-right parties. You're kind of dealing yourself out if you say that you don't have a trust of democracy. That is certainly true, and I do believe that is particularly important to remember when we talk about freedom of speech, for instance, where we are witnessing a strange lack of outrage in progressive circles when, you know, the freedom to to express one's political opinions is infringed upon. The most drastic example in the US is, of course, the banning of President Donald Trump on Twitter. Now, I wasn't a fan of Donald Trump's Twitter feed, and I'm a fan of Donald Trump, certainly not. But, you know, the fact that progressives around the world sort of popped the bottle of champagne because sitting president was expelled from Twitter struck me as strange because it's been the left that was defending freedom of expression. I mean, left-wing political parties were hit by censorship attempts from the right throughout their historical development. And now the fact that we are so nonchalantly are seeming to be okay with aspects of censorship strikes me as puzzling and as a little bit short-sighted, because obviously this can go both ways. Yeah, well, interestingly, I think it was Bernie Sanders, the the polar opposite of Donald Trump, uh, who made this point here in the United States. He was opposed to the banning of Donald Trump precisely because of that reason. I think, though, Michael, of the response that you get in some progressive circles now, that some forms of freedom of speech are dangerous. They can even endanger the physical health of people, if not the mental health of people. There's a question around genuine harm that goes beyond offence. Isn't that a problem? It's not nice to offend people, but niceness cannot be the organizing principle of a society. There's values that are higher than niceness. I think that niceness is important, but there's other principles in society that should override nicety and niceness. And it's obviously a slippery slope that if you declare the self-perception of offense to be the guiding principle of how our democratic discourse is being run, then you're not going to have much of a discourse because at some point somebody will always take offense. It's almost like in the Catholic Church to sort of have His Holiness the Pope, who sort of is infallible, but you're not making one person infallible. You're making basically everyone infallible. Every single individual who has the right to take offense can stop the debate. And at the end of that, we are not going to have a debate. And now the problem is that we need a debate. We're not going to arrive at politically wise decisions if we narrow the discourse, if we stop an open exchange of ideas. We need the marketplace of ideas. And what I find puzzling is sort of the skepticism amongst progressives, because it's basically based on a fear that people are going to come to the wrong conclusion. If you let people just discuss, if you let people decide for themselves that they might come up with a with the wrong conclusion. And I don't know where that's based from. You know, where does this fear come from? We should have more confidence in the democratic system, in the democratic process, that, that we'll eventually end up by, with doing the right thing. 
you're here in the United States and have been for the past couple of years. How does this kind of mistrust of democracy manifest itself here in the United States? And how do you compare it with the same phenomenon in Europe? I often feel that the U.S. is ahead of other democratic countries. So what we are witnessing in the U.S. ultimately arrives in Europe. And sometimes I think that the U.S. is a giant petri dish. We can see what's going to happen elsewhere. And I'm concerned because there's worrying trends in, in U.S. democracy, but of course also in, in large parts of Europe, where trust in democracy is eroding, trust in the capability of democratic governments to actually solve problems is eroding. How can we respond to that? Not by mere but we need to solve problems that are out there. Sometimes I think that we forget that democracy is in a competition with other systems out there. When you look at human history in general, uh, democracy is the exception, not the rule. And I'm very concerned that uh, democracy is looking ahead at some very troubling times. Dr. Michael Bruning of the Friedrich Ebert Institute. His new book is called On the End of Freedom, and there's a longer version of that chat at the ABC Religion and Ethics Report homepage or via the ABC Listen app. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.